0: If you would, this morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, starting in verse 9. If you want to use the pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at 9 through uh, the end of of the chapter, verse 21. If you do a a survey an overview of the Bible, you'll every once in a while you'll hit these uh, passages or hit these pockets where the Scriptures are saying to us, they're, they're giving us a, a list, if you will, uh, almost these, these bullet points of this is what it looks like uh, to, to function as a church or to be the body of Christ or to be a believer. This, these are the characteristics. This is what you should be aiming for to, to change into and, and to be who you are to be reflected in these truths, so to speak. So, for example, you've got uh, the Ten Commandments. I shall love the Lord God. Uh, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't don't lie. Don't don't covet. There's this list that we're to, to grow and have these things be familiar in our lives. You hit the Gospels and you've got uh, the Beatitudes and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and so on. These these attributes or these characteristics of, of the disciple. Maybe the, the the classic list, if you will, is. The fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about uh, the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, all these things that are to be reflected in our lives. And I take you on this, this survey, if you will, because th- this morning, this passage, 9 through 12, is going to have that list kind of feel. Of the, these are the, the attributes. These are the things that make you as a believer, or as the church Distinctive. These are the things that you should be growing into. These are the things that you should be like. And he's going to talk to us about love, the type of love that should characterize us as individual believers and us as the church, as the body of Christ. And this list that's going to come at us like, like bullet points, like a PowerPoint presentation, shouldn't really surprise us because of how Chapter 12 has started with a therefore Paul is saying, I've given you 11 chapters on doctrine. I've given you 11 chapters about what God has done for you, the salvation that he has purchased, especially in light of who you are, because of that truth, because you've experienced that, live this way. That's what that therefore is saying. Paul urging us to have our minds uh, transformed, to be a living sacrifice, to take up these attributes, to take up these characteristics in our own lives. So with that being said, if you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Hear God's Word to us. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Verse 14 Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, as it is written. It is mine to to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask that you would give us ears to hear all these instructions, all these words. Would you draw us closer to yourself in these moments? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. If you look at the, the overall pattern of how Paul writes many of his letters, you'll see that he starts with truth starts with doctrine he starts with theology he starts with all the things that that god has done and this is who he is and then he ends with live this way in light of this truth he ends with practicality he ends with this is where the rubber meets the road he ends with application and so he has done here in this book of romans 11 chapters as i mentioned a moment ago and now starting in verse 12 this is what it looks like for us and particularly, starting in verse nine, he's saying it's like he's saying to us: "This is what, uh, this is how the church should function. This is the the attributes it should have. This is what should characterize it. This is what you should expect uh, when you encounter believers, when you encounter Lord's people, that they're, they're moving in this direction of love. That love is functioning like this in their lives."
1: This past week, I was in.
0: Visiting somebody who's about to have surgery, and if you've ever had surgery or been with somebody who's having surgery, you know that you wait and wait and wait, and then they take you back in uh, what I call this little corral space. Okay, they give you this little room, and you, you're on your bed there, and they, you, the nurse is there, and they're asking you all kinds of questions: Have you eaten this? Have you done this? All this kind of stuff, and then the anesthesiologist comes in, and they talk to you for a while, and the, Soon enough, the, the doctor comes in, and they talk to you for a while, answer your questions, and they tell you, you know, we're going to start here soon. But many times, there's just this waiting period. You're just kind of waiting. And during that waiting period, it's just a lot of small talk that's going on, particularly between the, the patient and the, their family with the nurse and some of the staff there. And just, you kind of get to know each other, where are you from, and what do you do? And in this situation, um, the nurse found out that the individual having surgery was uh, a farmer at They were in the chicken business, the chicken and egg business, let's say, okay? And so he was kind of impressed by that and had some questions about that and curious. And then a little bit later on, this other nurse walks over, and she says, I've got some questions for you. I hear you know a lot about eggs. And she asked him, you know, is it true that somebody gave me a a bunch of farm eggs, and they said, don't worry about putting them in the refrigerator. Um, You just keep them outside the refrigerator, and they'll last forever. And she was like, is that true? were like, the egg experts were like, well, yes and no, basically. Uh, They're not going to last forever, but you do not have to refrigerate them. And then there was this back and forth about You as the church, this is how the church should function. In light of this truth that I've laid out for you, painstakingly so, in all these chapters, all these words, this is what the church should look like. This is what it should be moving towards. And he talks about love. He, He narrows in on let's talk about love and the nature of love in the church, in the Christian church and in the Christian life. And it's this topic of love that we're going to talk about this morning from these verses. But there is so much to explore. I mean, as you heard, it's this rapid gunfire of instruction uh, and commandments that that Paul is giving to us here. We're not going to hit it all, but we are going to focus in on the idea and topic of, of love. And I want to talk about it in three ways. I want to talk about genuine love. I want to talk about family love. And I want to talk about enemy love. Enemy love is going to be the worst. That's going to be the hardest for us, as you can imagine. The genuine family and enemy love. Genuine love, I mean what Paul says in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Other translations will have that as let love be genuine. If you were to translate that opening phrase, love must be uh, sincere, there's, there's different ways you can translate it in the sense that you can translate it in a positive way, which is what we see here, or you can translate it in a more negative way. And so the, the positive way is, again, what, what is said here, how it's translated, let love be genuine or let it be sincere, which is a great way to sum up the, the essence of the Christian life. It's, it's love that God has bestowed upon us, and it's the love that we show what? Our neighbor. You see about the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as well. And that's what Paul is, is keying in on here. That love, that's, the Greek word here is agape love. If you've been around the church or gone to Sunday school, you're familiar with that word, agape love. It's unconditional love. Up until this point in the book of Romans, agape love has been Paul's word of choice. But he's used it to describe God's love for us as his people. And now he's turning and say, this is the love that should characterize your own life, having this kind of unconditional agape love for others, you go to a wedding, you're going to hear that this positive uh, description of love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, and so on the list goes, it's just a, a positive picture of the type of love that the church should have and we as believers should have. The gospels pick up on this type of genuine or sincere love when they talk about this, Jesus says in, in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. Later on in chapter 14, he says, verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The point being that, that love moves. It's not just a sentiment. It's not, sense of, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but there's action behind it. There's, there's commitment. There's, there's work being done. There's movement, in a sense, and which is what Jesus is driving at. That's the positive way to, to translate this. Let's think about the, the negative way goes like this. You could translate it, love must be without hypocrisy. Love must be without hypocrisy. It's the same thing, Saying same, the same truth, but it, it, when he throws in the word without hypocrisy, it has a lot more punch, doesn't it? It has a lot more of an edge to it. Hypocrisy is what? It's simply pretending. It's acting. It, it's putting on a show. It's, you're reflecting something on the outside, but on the inside, it's, you're, you're completely different. And so you think about what hypocritical love looks like within the church. It means you're pleasant to somebody. You're nice to them on the outside. But on the inside, you despise them. You, you don't like them at all. Uh, you, you, you push them away, in a sense. Uh, you may be nice to somebody, but on the inside, you want to gossip about them. You're kind of slanderous about them behind their backs. It's, it's loving hypocritically. It's love that's not genuine. It's not sincere. God does not pretend to love us. He doesn't love us just with his words, but he's loved us how? By his action. He's loved us by going to the cross. It's a, it's a genuine, it's a sincere love, affection that he has for his people Paul is saying here, you've seen that love in your life. Now reflect that love. Let your love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Now now think for a moment why that's important, that we love with a sincere heart and that we don't love with a hypocritical heart. If you have people that are pretending or faking it about who they really are, if they're putting on a front, what they're going to tend to do is they're going to talk about every mistakes, everybody else's faults. What that person does, what what they do, what are they doing? They're guarding. They're hiding. They're they're doing that so so nobody sees their own flaws. So nobody sees their own imperfections. Their, their own the things that they struggle with their own. Now certainly the church should be a place where you come and you can say, you know, I don't have the best marriage. I don't have the best parenting skills. I'm, I'm struggling with this or with that in my personal life or my work life or In my family or what have you, it it, it should be a place where you can say, I'm struggling, will you pray for me? Will you help me? I I need somebody to talk to. Can you give me some guidance some direction? It should be a safe place for us to be living out this kind of uh, genuine love. Another reason why genuine love is important because Jesus has always been more concerned with our hearts as opposed to our outward actions he's concerned with what's going on on the inside what you do matters but that's not all there is to the story for example jesus in the sermon on the mount he'll say things like you know you've heard it said that that you should not uh, commit murder that you shouldn't be killing but i say to you even if you hate then you've broken that commandment he's concerned with the heart or you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery Then Jesus turns that on and goes deeper and says, but even if you thought a lossful thought about somebody, then you've broken that commandment. What's he communicating? And I care about your heart. I care what's going on inside. And so that's why there's this push for genuine love, for sincere love, to move us away from this kind of hypocritical love that we can easily fall prey to. The last reason why genuine love is important is this. You're not going to believe somebody loves you if you're exercising this kind of hypocritical love. Think about it. If people say they love you and they move towards you and you think you're the greatest and they're for you, and you're that person that's pretending that you're putting on an act, that you're like this, you're doing this, and they say they love you, what are they doing? That they love you for who you are on the outside, and there's this fear if they knew who I really was, if they knew what I was really thinking, what I was really struggling with, what I was really like, I don't think they would love me. And so when you pretend, you're not able to receive love from other people because you know they're not really loving you for who you really are. So in did of this teaching, here, here's some, how can you be sure that you're loving with a genuine love? You're not loving hypocritically. It all goes back to verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice and so on. It's about the therefore. It's it's about what God has done for us. It's about applying the, the logic of the gospel, if you will, to our lives. It's about remembering, God, you love me. You know who I am on the inside. You know where I'm struggling. You know my deficits, and yet you love me. And if we can know that love that he has for us, it frees us up to be ourselves. There's no need to pretend, to fake it. To say we're doing something You say things Oh, everything's okay, when inside you are just dying. You're depressed all the time. There's this darkness that you feel. You don't have to be that way because of God's love for you. It's about applying the logic of the gospel, if you will. Well, that's genuine love. Let's think about uh, what I'm calling family love that we see uh, later on here in this passage. When I come home at night or sometimes when, when my wife comes home, We'll go into the the back door, and there's a laundry room, and then we kind of move towards the the kitchen. And usually, I'm like three or four steps into the house, and all of a sudden, my son will jump out and go, Hey, Daddy! And it's just he'll scream at the top of his lungs. And the first couple times he did that, he, he shook me. He really did scare me because I wasn't expecting this voice to be shouting at me. But he does that. Instructs to us: Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another. Paul is using two love words that describe family love. And here's break it. Let me break it down like this: Be devoted translates uh, into a word that describes our natural affection for somebody. That a tendency that we have to to be for that person because we share the same blood with the same family, with the same kin, if you will. And then the other word there is love, obviously. And this is that Greek word Philadelphia, love. It's brotherly or sisterly love. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that, that word. It's that love that you have for somebody that's your sibling, that kind of brotherly affection, the brotherly love that you have for somebody. So Paul is using these two family words for love and bringing them together and saying this is the type of affection that you should have for one another, this blood relationship. Just as somebody a blood relationship, in other words, loves one another, so it is for you as a believer in God's church. In other words, you believe the gospel, you experience the grace of God in your life, and you're moved into this new family, this new family of God. And the same love that you have for your natural family, your blood family, it's the same type of love that you should have for one another because God is your father now. And you've had this experience of the gospel. Those things should characterize who you are. In the past, I've shared some of the teaching of a man named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I want to share with you something about his life that I thought was very instructive. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a, trained as a medical doctor in the early 1900s, which means like he was a doctor-doctor, like educated, practicing medicine. And then sometime in that, in that time as a doctor, he got a call to ministry. He basically changed, did a 180, and he went into pastoral ministry. And his first church was not in the big city, but it was in a rural church, a small-town church in, in, a, in an environment what we call a, a blue-collar community. In Wales, and when he got there, when he showed up there, he noticed something about that community. He noticed that they they talked differently; they had different experiences. It, it was a totally different demographic for him, and he noticed that they were they just didn't have anything natural in common. But he saw as he got to know them. the experience of the gospel that those people had had, the experience of grace and and forgiveness and how God worked in their lives, the things began to be different. There was a connection that he built with them. In other words, there there was a moment in his ministry in this community where he said to himself, you know what, I know I don't have a natural connection with them. Uh, We have different backgrounds. Uh, I I know that um, we talk different. I know they're not hip. I know they're not but I don't care. I like them. I, I, I love them because of, of how God has moved in their lives, and he's moving the same way in my life. In fact, it, Lord Jones would say, I feel more connected to them than I do with some of my doctoring friends and, and people from the city because of this experience of grace that we've had, because of this experience of God that we have. And that's what Paul is moving towards us here in this passage to think of the, the family love that you need to be exercising and growing in. You have this natural affinity with other people simply because you call God your Father, because you've had this experience of grace. You know what it's like uh, to have this, this, this weight of guilt and shame and to experience forgiveness and God's working in your life. And the point is, as we as God's people who know God's grace in our lives... We know we belong to the same Father. We need to be showing that kind of family love for one another here in the church. Is that hard? Yeah. There's a lot of people, just as there's a lot of people in your family that you probably naturally wouldn't choose to be part of your family. You probably don't naturally get along with them. So it is in the church. There's people in this community that you just naturally don't get along with. But remember who your Father is. Remember what God has done for you. Remember who Christ is. And that moves us to have this and embrace this kind of family love where we're devoted to one another like that. Let's talk about the third point here, enemy love. And we've got to move down to verses 17 through 19, really probably the, the toughest verses in this passage. Paul writes, "...do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone." Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul here is, of course, talking about this is how you respond to evil. This is how you respond to the enemy around you. We need to not return that evil. We need to be intent on returning harm to them. And it's clear how Paul wants us to handle these kind of relationships, where there's a a period or experience of where somebody has done us wrong, we don't seek retribution. We don't seek retaliation in that way. Of course, Jesus models this for us. Uh, He's abused physically. He's abused verbally. And we see how he responds to them, not in kind. Think about it maybe like this. Think about the spectrum of of the type of enemy that we can have, uh, that we can experience in our lives, the spectrum of it. You have on the one side, you have somebody who we may consider our enemy. They're our enemy in the sense that they just don't like you. Uh, You know that person doesn't like you. It's not like they're working actively against you. Uh, They're not actively slandering or gossiping or causing you harm, but they just don't like you. And there's just not that natural connection. Uh, Maybe in in the middle that, you have people who've wronged you. Um, They've hurt you in some shape or form, not by accident, but kind of intentionally. Um, they they just lied about you or they've lied to you. There's that kind of middle ground. And then you have the extreme enemy, if you will, uh, the person that's actively persecuting you. They want you to go down. They have uh, uh, bad things in mind for you. They want to see you hurt. They want to see you harmed. They are actively working against you. That's the, those that are persecuting you. Is the, the extreme of it. And the reason this is a big deal is because of what Paul says in, in verse 21 when he says overcome. Do not overcome evil with evil. That word overcome, it's a military word. There Overpower. Don't defeat. Don't overpower evil by acting in an evil way. If someone harms you, don't harm them back. If somebody lies to you, don't lie to them or about them in return. If you do that, you've lost. Evil has won. Evil has gained its ground. You've turned into evil, if you will, in that process. Some of you are probably familiar with the movies or, or the books, Lord of the Rings, and you know that story is about this ring. And this ring represents evil. The whole purpose of the story is to get that ring destroyed, to defeat evil. And in the process, every once in a while, you'll see this character come along and say, well, what if we took the ring? We're good. We can use that ring, and we can defeat Sauron, the the evil. We can use that ring to defeat that evil power. But the problem with that is, if a good person picks that up, they're going to turn evil in a sense, and they're going to use evil to defeat evil. And that's what Paul is getting at here in this passage, is, is not to... Be overcome, or let use evil to overcome evil. And then he talks about how to respond to these things. How is it that we respond to this evil? Or when somebody is our enemy, how do we respond to them? I know it's getting late, so let me give you two points of application, and then we'll uh, close in prayer. The first one is this, from verse 14. We learn that we need to bless them. We learn that we need to bless them. Verse 14, blessed are those who persecute you. And the best I can tell with this passage when he talks about that we need to bless is the sense of we need to pray for them. That's the best I can do with it, that we need to pray for those that are persecuting us. Uh, Certainly, it's what Jesus instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, pray for those who persecute you, Matthew chapter 5. You think about how practical that is. You've got somebody that's lying about you or lying to you. How practical it is that we would pray for them. Because it's very difficult to, to hate somebody, to be against somebody when you're praying for them. I mean, even at a minimum, if you can pray something along the lines of, God, I don't like this person. This person's an idiot. They're driving me crazy, so on and so forth. But will you work? Will you show them your truth? If you can at least do that, you're moving in the right direction of, of responding to what's happening. To you. The other one is this, is we forgive them. I mean, when is it not a good idea to forgive? Verse 17, uh, we do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Now, it's easy to say that we need to forgive them, but when you're in the heat of that moment, when you're in this relationship with somebody that's against you like this, as you call them your enemy, it's very difficult to forgive. It's very difficult to to be to, to put on that kind of maturity and have that kind of response. And there's something I heard uh, this past week that was very persuasive for me that, that helped me. Um, think about that. Paul is saying leave room for God's vengeance. Leave room for, for God to be the one that avenges. So think about it like this. Say somebody has, somebody has lied to you. They have straight up lied to your face in front of you, and they've done it in a very hurtful way. And Of course, you get angry with them. That person is a liar to you. You're just screaming in your head, liar, liar, liar. Now, what if I were to, to say to you, do you ever lie? And You say, well, yeah, I do. And I say, well, why did you do that? Well, it's complicated. Uh, it's because this or that was going on in my life. The point being, that the person that's lied to you, that person is a liar. And they deserve all kinds of bad things to happen to them immediately. But when you say, I lie, well, it's complicated. Uh, it's, it's much more difficult uh, to explain. I had this kind of upbringing. I was in this hard circumstance. Uh, my children were giving me a hard time. I didn't sleep last night. So All these reasons why we're not the person that's a liar and deserves all this wrath that should come upon us. There's a sense in which God can do the same thing in our circumstances, for us to think about it in the same way. The reason we allow room for God's vengeance, for God to be the one that's, that, that's bringing about a conclusion to this, is because he's the one that truly knows. To the person that we're calling a liar and you're so angry with, God can say the same thing about that person. You don't understand their circumstances. You don't know what they faced this morning. You don't know what happened in their family life. You don't know what happened in their upbringing. And when you think about it like that, it humbles us a little bit. So we don't know. We think about when we lie, we think we deserve all these excuses and we should be let off the hook. But when somebody else lies, they should get the worst kind of punishment. Because when we do it, it's complicated. When other people do it, it's hateful or spiteful. And God can do the same thing with us. God says, let me, the one, let me be the one that." Let me be the one because I know. I know the situation. While that's humbling for us to think, well, I'm not not any better than they are when I lie and they lie to me, the power to forgive, the power to show grace to somebody, the power not to overcome evil with evil comes in what? It goes back when we remember the therefore of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, because of the mercies of God, because of the grace of God, because of what all the things that Paul described to us, reminding us that we are sinful, that we deserve punishment. But by God's grace, he comes and saves us. Not because there's anything special about us, not because there's anything special about you, but because of his mercy, he chooses to forgive. And he gives us his son. If he's done that, how much more should we be willing to forgive and love others? Let's pray and ask God for work in our lives. Father, this love that's described here, uh, it's something that we can't do on our own strength. It is not meant to be something we can do on our own. We are ever dependent upon you, ever dependent upon you in prayer, ever dependent upon you in applying the gospel, applying your truth, applying your promises ever reminded how much we need you day in and day out. So would you change us? Would you be a, help us to be a people who love? Because you have loved us deeply. You've loved us richly. You've loved us by your grace. You've loved us to forgive us. Help us to be a people who find great strength in all that you are for us that enables us to be this love that's described here with those around us. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.